Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. Hi, folks. Tackling climate change will take entrepreneurial efforts of all shapes and sizes. There's already been unprecedented growth in the number of startups focusing on climate over the past few years, but I believe it's just the beginning. Decarbonizing the global economy, adapting to climate impacts, and introducing new products and services for a decarbonized world will require millions of people with an entrepreneurial mindset and commitment to climate. So where will all these entrepreneurs come from and how will they be supported? And how will the on-ramps to climate entrepreneurship become more inclusive and diverse? These are just a few of the questions I discuss with Mia Diawara and Jamil Wine. Mia is a partner at Lower Carbon Capital, one of the most ambitious and well-respected climate tech venture funds. Jamil is an advisor and educator working with climate entrepreneurs and investors around the world. Jamil and Mia are collaborating on a new bootcamp for climate entrepreneurs and our conversation about climate entrepreneurship was truly energizing for me. I learned a lot. Hope you do too. Here we go. Mia and Jamil, welcome to Invested in Climate. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thanks a lot, Jason. It's great to see you. I'm very excited for our conversation today as I hope it'll provide useful guidance for climate tech entrepreneurs really at any stage. Let's start off just by hearing about each of you and your journeys and why you're focusing on climate tech and how you got here. But first, where do I find you both today? So I am um, a partner at Lower Carbon Capital. We're an early stage venture firm focused on backing founders that are building ambitious solutions um, to the climate crisis and doing that in three categories that I'll, I'll lay out and talk about in a bit more depth later. Um, and I'm based in Oakland, California. Awesome. Very good. So I'm based in Washington, D.C. work across a few different organizations, um, kind of academic development, finance, as well as venture capital fronts with a predominantly heavy focus on uh, climate, both in the U.S. as well as emerging markets. Okay, fantastic. So we have both coasts covered and Mia, we're neighbors. I'm not too far from you. Let's dive in and learn a bit more about your backgrounds, your experience, and why you're focusing on climate and how you arrived at the role that you're at. So Mia, tell us, why did you choose to focus on climate and how did you end up arriving at Lower Carbon Capital? Yeah. So I am originally from Southern Colorado. Um, I'm the, the daughter of, of two biologists. So my parents, um, they met doing postdoc research at UC Riverside. And from an early age, I, I guess there were kind of two perspectives that shaped some of my career ambitions. 
One was this understanding of, of our place as human beings in this really delicate and fragile and extraordinary ecosystem that, you know, my, my dad is an entomologist, right, looking at, at bugs and my mom, uh, her, her PhD is in oceanography. And so kind of appreciation of the natural environment and our place within it. That's one angle. But the second is uh, my dad's family is from Mali in West Africa, which is a region that is set to experience extraordinary heat and kind of get kind of the bulk of the extreme heat events and warming that we're seeing as a result of climate change. And um, I had a a really transformative experience. I I kind of had my moment in high school when I was watching An Inconvenient Truth in my biology class and kind of had this experience of seeing that hockey stick curve. And the first thought was, why isn't this the thing that everyone is focused on? It kind of feels like all of the other problems that we're that we're working to solve, um, global inequities, health, and you know economic distress, all of those things are, are just significantly exacerbated by climate change and kind of an absence of a solution to this problem. I think that kind of pointed me into the direction of climate early on. Uh, I went to Stanford in undergrad. I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an engineer or a film major, and um, ended up doing an interdisciplinary <laughs> major in, in science, technology, and society. And so then after some transformative fellowships, ended up getting my master's in civil and environmental engineering at Stanford in the atmosphere and energy program there, basically looking at emerging energy technologies, global energy systems, and the intersection between those and um, atmospheric science and climate change. And then my path to lower carbon, I I had a pretty transformative experience at Rocky Mountain Institute. I was doing a fellowship there, looking at market-based solutions, right? And so I ended up then going to Bain & Company, worked across several industries there, including utilities, um, advising executives and on operational and business challenges, and then found my way to TPG, where I was working, again, in, in sustainability and basically helping TPG look at the existing portfolio at financed emissions and supporting portfolio companies and measuring and reducing them. And then also on setting up TPG Rise Climate, the climate-focused impact fund there and leading impact assessment work to figure out, to to ensure that the investments that were being made were getting the most bang for carbon, bang for the buck. And really enjoyed that work. I think particularly the the work within large organizations trying to move the needle and um, recognizing the scale of impact when you're working at a firm that has, you know, 90 plus billion dollars in assets under management was very compelling. And it's it's tough to transform really large organizations. And, and so I kind of felt myself being drawn to earlier stage and, and building the solution set and taking advantage of smaller, more agile teams who are really kind of at the frontier and at the forefront of developing these technologies. That's very much the thesis of lower carbon. That's how we approach our work with companies. That's what we're looking for in investments is, you know, building the tools and technologies that will ultimately make the decisions that are best for the planet, also the ones that are best for everyone's self-interest or for corporate self-interest. And that's kind of how I ended up here and have really enjoyed the work here so far of getting to be inspired by incredibly ambitious and visionary entrepreneurs that are imagining the future that we want to move into. Wow. Thank you, Mia. Such an impressive background and so much of what you said and your experience and your perspective really resonates with me personally. 
Jamil, I don't envy you uh, having to follow Mia uh, and describe your journey, but I know that you're actually working to support climate entrepreneurship really in more ways than I can count. We'll go deep into the bootcamp that you're working on uh, in a minute, but first, you know, let's hear high level about what you're up to and how you arrived at focusing on supporting climate tech investors and, and entrepreneurs. I think the moment where I started to think about climate change in a lot more kind of rigorous, systematic way was when I was living and working in the Middle East in North Africa. So I spent the first six, seven years of my career exclusively focusing on that region of the world. And my work there focused on you know this intersection of international development meets the world of startups and, and VC. So how do you go into emerging markets, low-income communities as well as countries, and find different ways to support them so that they can grow, obviously, but, but also produce technologies, products, services, et cetera, that can have an impact on the surrounding communities and, and their economies. And so when I was working in the region, it's, it's obviously very well endowed when it comes to sunlight. It's also a very arid and dry climate. It's a very hot climate, very low in terms of water resources. Um, and and you know, in these, all these factors are becoming exacerbated and, and increasingly true. And so started talking very informally with different investors and different entities that were supporting entrepreneurs in the region on kind of where and how they can be more kind of build environments that are more conducive to supporting clean tech entrepreneurs in general. And so I co-led a study with my company at the time, which was a venture capital slash kind of media platform in the region um, in parallel with General Electric back in 2014, 2015 just looking at climate tech across the region writ large. And so from kind of Morocco into the Gulf um, and everywhere in between, what were the, the trends and challenges that entrepreneurs that were trying to build some type of climate technology facing? That's something that I had kind of then put on the back burner after working on that project. And, you know, a few years ago, started working on projects, again, focusing on climate, but from different angles. And that's where I've stayed involved to this day. I, I like to kind of look at this issue from a few different perspectives. So, so on one hand, uh, I do a lot of work advising governments. So I've worked with the government of Pakistan, Egypt, Iraq on their own climate finance strategies. And so that would be more in the foreign aid development finance bucket. Also teach, so I teach a course at George Washington University focusing on systems thinking and entrepreneurship. Um, oh, sorry, systems thinking and climate change. So, so not necessarily as focused on entrepreneurship, more of taking a step back and looking at things from a macro level and, and seeing all the different stakeholders and factors that affect climate change and, and how systems can be improved in order for us to be more adept at mitigating as well as adapting to climate change itself. On the VC and startup front, I have a you know portfolio of companies that I've invested in in the climate tech space, very, very early stage as well, primarily in the kind of mitigation bucket as well. And then when it comes to kind of more research and strategy work, I, I co-lead a project out of Oxford Business School focusing on climate technology writ large. So both developed as well as developing countries and trying to get a sense of kind of what the pulse of those subsectors looks like, how technologies are coming to the fore, where are the constraints in terms of growth, where are more resources needed to build out ecosystems surrounding climate tech. So suffice to say, you know, obviously the bootcamp is part of that portfolio of different projects, but I try to have as comprehensive a focus on it as possible. But at the same time, I think that as we'll probably unpack a lot through this conversation, there's always facets that are unaccounted for and, and a lot of new perspectives that need to be addressed as well. Great. Well, between the two of you, we certainly have depth and breadth covered. So excited for this conversation so much that we could all learn from you both. I'd love to spend a few minutes talking about the kinds of opportunities you're most excited about right now. Mia, I know you're probably seeing hundreds of deals every week. 
Lower Carbon has made investments in everything from nuclear fusion to synthetic bio to feed additives that make cows burp less to forest planting drones. What spaces are you personally most excited about right now? Well, first, I think it's worth laying out for folks that are not as familiar in the buckets that we use to structure our uh, investment framework and the framework that we use to identify opportunities in the climate tech landscape. So we, we back companies doing one of three things, right? Either reducing emissions across all sectors of the economy. And so that's everything from finding lower emissions alternatives, processes for producing materials like steel and cement and, and decarbonizing the industrial sector to electrification and finding new ways to generate electricity, you know, like fusion that are lower emissions to food and agriculture. Really, if you kind of look at the full pie chart of the 50 plus gigatons of emissions that we spew into the atmosphere annually and kind of look at the largest categories there, those are all fair game for us, right? So companies working to bring down emissions across those industries. Um, the second bucket is, is carbon removal. Companies working to actually pull CO2 out of the atmosphere through nature-based solutions, engineered solutions, and a combination thereof. And then the third category is buying more time for communities on the front lines and for ecosystems. And so in this area, and this is an area where I personally am, am very interested, and I would say if there's kind of an overall bucket that I think, unfortunately, is going to have to be a bigger part of everyone's climate investment as we head into a future that already locks us in to some degree of climate impact and that many people are already experiencing. That includes investments like Coda Farm Tech, which does automated irrigation to help reduce water consumption in agriculture, or Cloud to Street, which is using satellite imagery to allow for a level and a quality of flood modeling that we can't currently do for the majority of the planet and helps to then provide parametric insurance opportunities for areas that otherwise are not currently insurable. So those are kind of the three main categories that we focus on. The majority of my time recently has fallen into four categories. So the first is the built environment, um, and that includes both embodied and operational emissions. You know, if you look across the life cycle of materials, buildings are responsible for 50% of emissions, and about three-fifths of that is operational, which has been the majority of the focus so far for reduction. Um, it's kind of the low-hanging fruit. You know, there are things you can do from an HVAC standpoint or a lighting standpoint that can help you reduce emissions pretty rapidly. And then about two-fifths of that is embodied emissions, right? And emis this is emissions in, in the actual footprint of the materials that we're using in buildings, both in primary structural elements. And then about half of it, if not more, is in these secondary or elements or finishes, which are replaced at a pretty high pace in commercial buildings, especially. These buildings have really long lifetimes, and so there's a tremendous opportunity to build them more efficiently when it comes to materials, when it comes to design, and then, of course, in the way that we operate them. And so I'm interested in technologies that are tackling all three of those categories. Most recently have looked at everything from marketplaces for sustainable or low-carbon building materials to footprinting that can be done at the project level to novel biomaterials that take feedstocks like diseased or weak wood and transform them into materials with profiles that rival steel and cement in terms of how they can be used. Tangentially related to buildings, because it's an area that is within the built environment, but then also expands outside of it to things like cold chain, is cooling. Just cooling as a category is something that I've been really nerding out about. And it's interesting because it straddles two buckets, right? The emissions reduction category of what we invest in, 
um, because you have the opportunity to really increase the efficient energy efficiency of these systems, as well as to potentially displace, you know, ultra high global warming potential greenhouse gases, refrigerants that we currently use. And then also the buying more time category, because as we start to see extreme heat patterns play out across the globe, you know, I think just today about 40 million people or 13% of the, the contiguous U.S. is in areas that are expected to have dangerous levels of heat just today, right? And we've seen kind of the successive really extreme heat waves in India, um, with New Delhi clocking in at a max temp of 107 degrees for, you know, or above for nearly 30 days this summer. Cooling and, and giving access to cost-effective, hyper-efficient cooling technologies is going to be really critical for large swaths. And so um, I'm looking for interesting technology that moves some of the moves beyond some of the older paradigms of evaporative cooling or vapor compression, looking for things that are low cost, low global warming potential or refrigerant free, um, and also for innovation on the business model side as well. And cool stuff that I've seen there are companies using the same kinetic processes used in tornadoes to do cooling or using a liquid desiccant and finding new ways of regenerating it, um, seeing cooling as a service business models. Another area kind of related to that is cold chain technology. We recently made an investment in a company that's doing battery-powered smart thermoelectric coolers that can keep drugs and food cold and make them more accessible and make all of the processes more efficient, right? So displacing emissions from really emissions-intensive and inefficient refrigerated trucks, for example. Um, I really want to see someone building like cool, inexpensive, wearable technology for heat protection. So kind of think of the like still suits from Dune or skin coatings that protect against not only UV, but um, either facilitate faster evaporation of, of sweat or reflect other radiation and really interested in, in those areas. And then the last is, is nature-based solutions and just kind of expanding the lens beyond carbon alone to account for biodiversity, other ecosystem services, I think it's important that we find ways to help some of the communities that have long been taking, leading the charge on, on land stewardship and preservation and protection of ecosystems to be able to benefit from all of the investment that we're seeing in, in carbon removal and in offsets. Obviously, some of these solutions have different durability or higher reversibility risk than tech-based CDR approaches. We can struggle with baselining, measurement verification, but they're really important from the standpoint of total ecosystem health. And I've seen a lot of cool tech and business model innovation um, in terms of catalyzing the supply side, increasing the integrity of, of measurement and verification, et cetera. Thanks, Mia. So much there and actually so much that I'd love to spend time on. But quickly, the built environments, a space that I'm really interested in and tracking as well. I'll include in the show notes a link to a map that was published just this week of cities or locations in the US that are at risk of having extreme heat by the end of the century. And they're defining extreme heat as having one day or more of 125 degrees. And so what we've seen this year is really just the beginning in terms of heat waves. Let me also add that if folks are interested in what Mia was talking about in terms of built environment investing and cooling, just recorded an episode with the founder of a venture firm called 2150 and the founder of a cooling company called Blue Frontier. Really interesting cooling as a service business that could really flip the air conditioning market on its head. I hope you check that one out. You also mentioned uh, at some point flood tracking. We recently also did an episode with the venture firm Burnt Island Ventures and the founder of Storm Sensor, a technology company that's using sensors uh, and technology to help cities detect and track floods. 
Mia, one of the things that came up in the conversation that I mentioned uh, on built environment was the adoption really of, of real estate asset owners and what it takes to either get customers that are retrofitting buildings or get the new technology integrated into uh, new construction. And I'm curious that as you're doing investment in this space, how are you thinking about really the customer acquisition for adoption of built environment technologies when they're really such large infrastructure plays? So the first thing that I would say is that the commercial real estate landscape is is a particularly tricky one and one that I've had a lot of exposure to, not only in my time at Lower Carbon, but in working at TPG as well. TPG has a really large real estate arm. And I think there's complexity in terms of how these organizations make decisions. And you know, you'll often find segmentation between who's making investment decisions in terms of identifying you know, new development opportunities or acquisition prospects, and then the arms of these organizations that are more focused on environmental social governance or climate action and kind of bringing down the emissions profile of their holdings. And that can be tricky when you are a solutions provider that is looking to sell into that market and, and kind of build the value proposition. You kind of have to decide, okay, are we going to kind of go after the investors and try to, to make the case on ROI and or work more with the ESG and climate teams? And, and ultimately, that's going to vary a lot by companies. But I think like that's one of the things that I think we've seen companies struggle with is identifying the right stakeholders to sell to within those organizations. And ideally, we see more harmony in terms of ESG and climate being really just a lens through which like an additional, you know, diligence lens that investors are applying and, and you know, being able to see the value there versus kind of having it sit in these silos within the organizations. But until that's the case, you kind of have to be able to make the pitch and the case to both parties. What I will say is that Companies that will have early success in that landscape are ones where they are able to kind of make the case for these cash flow positive or profitable opportunities and really kind of amplify the case for reducing operating expenses and bringing up the overall value of the assets, right? And we're beginning to get more and more data points around the value of commercial building that has solar and storage on it and how that will impact the price at which you're able to sell that down the road. And so I think really leaning into the business case there and the most promising opportunities might be in being able to bake those considerations into ROI upfront. And, and so kind of really tackling like the investment side of things and helping to make the case there. We have a company in our portfolio, Lumen Energy. They have had you know, success in kind of approaching, they're able to basically prospect the potential for solar and storage, taking into account the incentives environment and basically all of the, the tailwinds in different geographies, as well as obviously the, the potential and kind of identify where it would be most profitable for CRE asset managers or owners to make those investments and where they've seen some traction is in really being able to frame out the investment case there. So that's kind of the name of the game. And um, ideally, we'll see more and more consideration of kind of the pricing basically of the externalities of if you have like really inefficient or dirty, you know, emissions intensive buildings, those will kind of ultimately garner a bit of a discount at some point. But until that materializes, I think being able to really lean into the positive economic attributes of the solutions you're providing, which like they're there. Um, and so just being able to make that case is really key. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And increasingly, it's not just sustainability as a feel-good strategy, but it's really about having more efficient, more resilient, healthier 
buildings and properties that will create better longer-term tenants and a better work environment for those that are inside of those buildings. Jamil, let's turn to you. Where do you see the most opportunity for climate tech startups right now? I think Mia did an awesome job of covering the spectrum of different sectors that that you know where both investors are, are placing their dollars as well as you know talent is is building companies. Um, so I don't know how much more I can add on top of that that would be different from what she said. But I think to complement that a bit, rather than focus on pure business opportunity, I would I would maybe switch the question a little bit, Jason, if it's okay to talk about where I think need is, where we may not necessarily see an abundant and kind of clear and present business opportunity in the near term, but the need is certainly there and is growing. So in the larger field of climate finance, typically you think about dollars are broken down in terms of mitigation as well as adaptation. So mitigation just being, do we reduce GHGs or either reduce, remove, or avoid the emissions of GHGs into the atmosphere? And then on the adaptation side, it's essentially you know, everything else. Once you've accepted the fact that climate change is kind of here to stay and that we're not going to necessarily be able to solely rely on mitigation technologies, how do you adapt? And and within emerging markets in particular, like adaptation funding is enormous need, but at the same time, it's it's very underrepresented, right? Like it's very difficult for investors to define that solution set of technologies and business models that require adaptation funding. And because of that, countries that aren't necessarily that big of emitters are running into this challenge of saying, well, we don't necessarily have an abundant use case around emission, or sorry, mitigation technologies. But what we really need is to ensure that the industries that we've basically built our livelihoods around, which oftentimes could be agriculture, as well as others that are very large employers, are are quite vulnerable, right? They're quite exposed. So everything from agritech, so climate smart agriculture, to build up resilience of crop yields and more resilient seeds, all the way to just ensuring that if you're in a coastal city, you're not going to be overly exposed to to flooding and, and you know quick changes and unpredictable changes in weather. Those are all areas that emerging markets slash low-income countries are, are facing now, is, and they're going to get worse. And the solution there isn't necessarily your traditional climate tech product. And obviously, there's overlap between those two buckets, but I think that that's a big need. Also, I think in general, thinking about how do you support developing countries as they make this transition is a large gap that I think a lot of groups are still wrestling with. And it's not necessarily what we've been conditioned to learn about. Usually when we invest, we invest kind of in a kind of a local geography in our own zip code. You know, the responsibility of helping countries adapt falls on groups like the UN and the World Bank and local governments. So I think that's that's where for me, a huge opportunity, but also a massive challenge still lies. And I, and I would also say still, like we've, we you know, I, I don't know if this is kind of common knowledge, but, but I mean, there's also just helping to achieve other development outcomes can also have a large impact on climate. So promoting gender equity, ensuring inclusion of women and girls, upholding good practices around family planning. These aren't necessarily climate tech products and solutions by nature, but they, I think, are part and parcel of the larger agenda to help uh, mitigate as well as adapt to the changes of climate change. So in summary, I would say that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that while there's a lot of breakthrough technology and really amazing innovators and smart investment being made, there's parallel needs that kind of without having those met, the, the full output and outcomes from those investments may not necessarily come to fruition in the way that we attend them to. 
But at the same time, it's it's extremely exciting to be working on these issues because I think you know, as probably we'll get into now, um, you know, we've never had before this this number of people and talented individuals thinking about these issues all at once. And so that gives me a lot of confidence and, and positivity that we're that we're primed to, to make a dent in some of these challenges that we've outlined here. Well, I think that is a perfect segue. Just as there's a need to tackle more problems, there's also a need for more entrepreneurs. And so that I think brings us to the boot camp that you've been working on. You're about to launch a four-week boot camp for people interested in starting climate tech companies. Tell us about it. What is the boot camp and who are you aiming to support? The idea behind the boot camp, I'm fortunate to be working with a really awesome team at an ed tech firm in the UK called CoLeap. I had the pleasure of meeting them a few months ago and started talking about how could we build some type of ed tech offering around climate tech. And the solution that we've got so far is, as you said, a four-week, what we call a learning community, where we bring together very, very early stage, almost idea stage founders. So think talented individuals that um, have been either working on climate and have yet to start a company in it, or they've working they've been working in another industry and for various reasons feel compelled to start kind of converting their career to one that's much more focused on climate. Historically, your, your opportunities for support are either you go to accelerators or you go to angel investors or go to family and friends and start trying to raise capital for your idea and build momentum and traction that way. What we believe, though, is even before you get to that point, there's a really important kind of intersection that you reach where you need to start building out learning opportunities, relationships with mentors, building your understanding of the industries that you're trying to work in. And I guess you could say most important out of all of this is, is the problem that you really want to solve. I mean, I think when, when I was listening to Mia talk about the different investment opportunities, I was thinking, you know, how does somebody even begin to start educating themselves on those opportunity sets how do you know, you know, where does where do you as a skilled professional, what are you best sit, suited to do in terms of having an impact on climate? And so we want to use the boot camp as a way to give people a community in which they can learn, access to great advisors and, and experts such as Mia, who can help them navigate some of these early stage challenges. And once they've completed that four weeks with us, we want to be able to send them into the accelerators of the world, the investors of the world that can help them in that next stage of their development. I'm so quite excited to get this going because I think that what often gets talked about in, in, in terms of climate change is the financing gaps. But at the same time, we're going to need people working on the problems and solutions that we're trying to fund. And I think a lot of this experiment came about, and I think I might have even posed this question to Mia at some point. Um, but we often talk about $100 billion or trillions of dollars that are needed to start filling climate finance gaps writ large uh, globally. But then the question would be, well, if we were to start filling those gaps, who would be working on the solutions? Who'd be building those companies? Who'd be maintaining that infrastructure? Who'd be ensuring that the workforce is ready to, to go? Because just like we have to close the finance gap quickly, we have to ensure that the talent is being mobilized just as fast. Tell us about those four weeks. It's not a lot of time, so I'm sure you have a pretty rigorous and structured program. What will actually be happening week over week? And what do you expect entrepreneurs will get out of it? So the way we've broken it up is... You know, each week is going to have a different expert that's assigned to it. And so, so in no particular order here, one week is going to be focusing a lot on problem identification and product. So we're working with a seasoned multi-time uh, multi founder in the climate space who also has a background in hard tech product development, so working with the cohort in going through the process of both designing a product, but more importantly, finding that problem within the spectrum of climate-related challenges that you're, that you're going to be tackling with your product. We're also going to have a series of modules around measurement and also the tie-in between measurement and identifying a problem. 
Um, I'm sure Mia can you know speak to this uh, as well, but the amount of emphasis that investors place on being able to prove tangible impact, whether it be removal of GHGs, avoidance of GHGs, or some other climate-related um, vertical is kind of tantamount to returns. And so being able to prove that you're working on a technology that's going to have a dramatic impact on the climate is, is essential, but it requires a lot of frameworks and a lot of science behind it that you know a lot of us don't have. And so working with experts, having them explain to you what that process looks like is pretty critical. And then we're also allocating the last two weeks to really focus on the investment side of things. So, so working closely with people like Mia, as well as Hampus Jacobson from Pale Blue Dot to help orient the learners with one, like what's unique about the climate VC landscape? What if you were to work in front or sorry, sit in front of a climate tech investor, what are the unique questions they'd be asking you? How do you want to prepare yourself in order to get in front of somebody that's going to be grilling you and assessing the, you know, the impact both that your team can have as well as your product can have on climate? And then we're going to be spending a lot of time with the cohort thinking about planning their next steps, right? We're just the first step in a very, very long process for them. So we've been building out partnerships with groups like My Climate Journey, Antler, Impact Alpha. All of these are resources that they they can either step into for further structured support or to develop the larger community around them that they're going to need as they go throughout their life cycle of being an entrepreneur working on climate. Mia, you're joining the boot camp as an instructor. What should your students expect to learn in, in your sessions? I'm going to grill them like Shark Tank. I'm just kidding. To Jamil's point, I mean, I think a, a big part of this is really pulling back the curtain and showing, you know, what investors are looking for, really helping them think from an investor's lens and point of view, how they want to be making the case for, for the technologies or the, the tools that they're building, right? So I'm going to talk about how investors assess climate tech companies and what founders should think about when laying out the investment case, what to highlight, pitfalls to avoid, how to craft a compelling narrative, right? I'm going to kind of pull back the curtain and share a bit about how we think about our investment decisions, what we look for in teams, including, you know, lenses around diversity, equity, inclusion, a little peek at how we think of things to, to really help prospective founders put their best foot forward when pitching to investors and navigating round dynamics. Mia, I sort of suspect that you're not actually expecting to find companies ready for an investment from lower carbon capital through this bootcamp just because they're they're so early stage still. So why did you sign on to join as an instructor? Yeah, well, so the first thing I'll say is that at Lower Carbon, we are interested in supporting and backing early stage companies. So we do like to get involved with companies at the pre-seed or seed stage. And sometimes that means it's at the idea stage where there's just a technology or just an idea or just a team. And so the first thing is we are really interested in working with founders as early as possible. But I think at large, we're really interested in getting as much high quality talent as possible to shift into building climate tech, right? We need all hands on deck and as many shots on goal as possible. And we also really want to build the diversity of that pool of talent that's starting companies or joining early stage companies. And so a big part of that, from my perspective, is democratizing access to information and to advice. And I really see this as an opportunity to help do that in a way that's accessible to those of us who don't come from backgrounds where we have this deep bench of advisors to tap on when we need help or don't have a team of angel investors on standby or wealthy family and friends who can help us get things off the ground. I think making information about how to raise capital, about what investors are looking for as openly available as possible is really the only way to start to build a 
pool of talent and, and founders that represents the world that we live in. To be clear, that doesn't necessarily solve everything. The last thing I would want to do is put the onus on underrepresented communities to kind of step up to the plate because there's a lot of deep work and transformation that needs to happen on the investment side of things to combat our own biases and broaden our investment criteria and mindsets to accommodate a more diverse assortment of perspectives and backgrounds. But tooling founders to navigate the realities of this investment landscape while pushing for that more systemic change and how that landscape distributes advantages and disadvantages is key. And I see this course as a way to help support that. Absolutely. And definitely one of the reasons why I was excited to have this conversation is I see the work that you're both doing is really creating more entry ramps and helping people enter with more of um, consistent knowledge, consistent language, consistent expectations so that there is more equitable opportunity. I'd love to take a step back and think of just a big picture around the growth in climate tech investing and entrepreneurship. Last year, venture investing doubled compared to the year previous. This year, the number of early stage deals that is seed or series A it doubled at least for the first half of 2022 compared to the first half of 2021. And those are just the venture-backed companies, right? There's surely many, many entrepreneurs building businesses that aren't a fit for venture capital. And it paints a picture of an increasingly vibrant entrepreneurial community that all around the world, that there's more people than ever before creating new businesses to help address climate change. So I'm curious, where do you see this leading? What will climate entrepreneurship look like in the years to come? And how must entrepreneurial ecosystems evolve to help the climate founders succeed? Small question, I know. Jamil, why don't we start with you? On the positive side of things, I don't think we've seen a thematic investment area get this type of attention, at least in you know my lifetime. I mean, in terms of the amount of VC activity, but also I, I don't think I've ever seen a quote unquote sector or I know Mia once you called it a horizontal rather than a vertical. And I've, I've used that a lot. I don't think I've ever seen that coincide with the passing of a massive national piece of legislation in the form of the IRA also happening in parallel to major global events major declarations being made by governments and development finance institutions and foundations. Like I, I just don't, I don't think that there's been something that has galvanized so much capital and so much support, which I think is just kind of building off of what you've said there, Jason. And as a result of that, I think it's moving extremely fast and it's very difficult for us sometimes to keep pace and figure out, well, where is that next breakthrough technology going to come from? Who's going to build it? What's it going to look like? And so I think that one thing that I'm, that I'm hopeful for is that, and I know this is going to sound rather academic, but I really am excited to see that day where we have like a suite of best practices and leading companies that we can point to and say, these aren't just VC backed, but these are sustainable, scalable enterprises that are actively both, you know, decarbonizing their surrounding environments, as well as ensuring that society can, can continue to exist, both in countries that have, are well endowed, but also those that are, you know, historically been lower resourced. But at the same time, I think we're going to run into limitations on technologies, right? That like some of our solutions that we're looking for right now may not come in the form of climate tech the way that we're talking about it today between the three of us. I'd love for that to be the case, but there's also going to be a lot of hard decisions made around fundamental infrastructure, basic systems, supply chains, et cetera, which technology can facilitate in, but it's also going to be a lot of like hard policy decisions that governments are going to have to make. And so to our benefit, I don't think governments have felt more pressure before either to act. And so I do think that a residual impact of a lot of the climate tech activity is going to be that governments and policymakers and maybe decision makers that oversee large pools of capital that have historically not 
put their money to work around climate are going to feel that pressure. And so that's another big outcome that I would hope would come from the VC and technology activity in this space. I think that the last thing, again, I just go back to the adaptation. I hope in the future, we're also able to really crack this adaptation angle because for a lot of countries and a lot of societies, you know, we're, we're not going to necessarily have the luxury of choosing between mitigation and adaptation. We're just going to have to adapt. And knowing that solution set that can support in that effort is mission critical. And so my hope is that in climate tech space, we're able to really break ground on that. And it becomes kind of institutionalized in the way that we see investment opportunity in this space. Thanks, Jamil. Mia, any thoughts on the future of entrepreneurship for climate and how entrepreneurial ecosystems must evolve? I see a lot of parallels between this era of climate tech and kind of the new era of web development, right? So, and, and kind of you can use clean tech 1.0 as an analog to web 1.0, right? Building a software company in the time of web 1.0 was just really expensive and hard. And things like cloud hosting, open source software, ubiquitous internet connections, have made it dirt cheap and spawned innovation. And you saw so many entrepreneurs kind of rise to the challenge and, and iterate on things and, and develop all of these novel technologies and business models in that environment. Um, and I think we're seeing something really similar in hardware and deep tech. And this is part of why, you know, that's a core focus area and, and what we invest at, at Lower Carbon. But it's just fundamentally cheaper now to start building a hardware company than it was a decade ago. And um, that's in part due to advances in computing and things that we've unlocked in machine learning and, and AI and simulation and biology and electrochemistry and kind of the way that all of those cost curves have declined. And so what that does is it, it democratizes it. When it takes less money to start a company, more people can take a shot and start a company. And, and I really hope to see that translate to development and innovation in the global South and in regions that have historically been underinvested and have also experienced brain drain to the global North and to countries like the United States and to, to Europe. And, and Jamil can speak a lot to kind of the educational foundations and some of the things that, that can help to really cultivate those ecosystems. But, you know, we're, we're seeing so much innovation in countries like Nigeria and Kenya. And as things continue to get cheap, that landscape of what a company, what a startup can do and what a founder can, can take a shot at will just broaden. And so what I really hope to see is, yeah, as, as we continue to have all of these technological enablers is really a democratization of access to innovation. And then what hopefully will come from that. Um, and again, there are biases that investors need to work through here is the investment that then is required to really kind of take those ideas and, and grow them into thriving ecosystems in other parts of the world. And so that, that's what I hope for. We, we've started to see it. And, and now the investors kind of it's on us as investors to help to facilitate that. Jamil, did you have a follow up? Just one thing to add there. I think that, you know, something is interesting because I, a lot of my career is kind of paralleled and gone in and out of the impact investment sector. And something that's often talked about in that space is, well, every investment is actually an impact investment. I mean, some people like to say that and use that as a way of articulating how any decision that you make with your dollars, whether you're seeking to have some type of social, environmental or economic impact or purely just get a return, it's having an impact in some shape or form, even if you're not intending to do it. And I think what would be interesting to see evolve is if now we're building funds focusing purely on climate tech and achieving climate-related outcomes. And I think what would be interesting and quite uplifting across both the VC sector as well as just how we deploy capital in general as a, as a species is that climate factors into 
portfolio creation and firm creation, irrespective of whether somebody has set out to have make a dent in efforts to address climate change or not. So what I'm saying here is maybe at some point we're going to stop thinking about kind of climate vis-a-vis other startups and more saying that even if the intentionality to build a product or service that supports addressing climate change isn't fundamental to your model, you're not in a position where you can neglect that though. And both funds as well as companies building that into the way that they develop strategy, the way that they hire, the way they go to market, the way they exit, that all I think is going to have to get mainstreamed. Um, Because I don't think that we can pass such sweeping legislation and have these calls to action if they only really focus on one percentage of the VC sector, right? I think it's got to get spread across portfolios because otherwise it's going to be very difficult for us to realize both the the returns as well as the type of of environmental and climate-related impact that we hope to achieve here. I think that's a great point. And if we understand that we are really living through the era of climate transition, then all companies become climate companies. They're all dealing with the same risks of climate impacts and climate shocks and a heating world. And they face opportunities of a market and a society that is being transformed. Jamil, Mia, thank you so much for this conversation. I've learned a lot and really enjoyed talking to you. A final question, your parting advice. What would you advise to people that are contemplating starting a climate tech company? And we know it's not as simple as just going and doing it. What do you want to impart as the most important ingredients or questions they should ask so that they can truly succeed? We think about a lot of the investments we make through a lens of of a set of questions that I think are really helpful for anyone starting out in contemplating building a company or a technology or a solution in this space. And so four key questions that I would challenge all pre-founders or potential founders or entrepreneurs or just people who are thinking about working on this problem to answer is why now? So what has fundamentally changed in the area that you are addressing? What are the tailwinds that are supporting you? What is kind of the broader environment that facilitates you winning or, you know, kind of the core innovation or the core unlock that makes now the time to do what you're doing? I think we can all feel the burning need of of climate change as being the why now to start something, but then there are going to be nuances that would make you want to start one thing rather than another. And so I think really asking that question and making sure that you're getting the timing right is key. Yeah. Why now for your particular business? Yeah, exactly. And it's clear why now we need as many people building in this space as possible, but why now for you and for what you want to build? What is your unfair advantage? What is the thing that makes your team the best team to build this or that makes your technology the best possible technology to kind of solve the problem that you're addressing? What needs to be true about the world for you to succeed? And so if you are banking on an entire you know, category of infrastructure cropping up that isn't around yet, then you might want to take a second thought there. And, and then the fourth is how does the world change when you succeed and what kind of climate impact can you create? And I think those should be kind of the four North Stars for anyone building in climate and to kind of help you to, to understand the scale of what you're doing and, and whether that matches the scale of the problem that lies ahead. Thanks, Mia. Jamil, go for it. To build off that last point that she raised, I think that Drilling deep on impact from day one to really understand what that theory of change looks like is, is critical, right? So so if you were to start off, say, with like the index that Project Drawdown put together around the most impactful technologies, let that maybe be a starting point. But then you have to think about the population that you're serving, the geographies that you're serving, 
How are you going to measure those outputs and outcomes? Because I think that it, there's, as we said earlier, there's a, there's a very wide spectrum of climate technologies out there. Not all are having the same impact. Some of them also have much longer turnarounds in order to get to that impact. And so understanding like how that technology behaves vis-a-vis the type of impact you're seeking to achieve is, is, is pretty critical. The other thing too, which is I, I, it's not necessarily unique to climate tech, but I do think that it takes a heightened importance is, and again, this isn't an endorsement for the boot camp, but I do think that network and community that you build around yourself is, is, is essential, right? Because before you get dollars in the door or even get that product tested, you need to ensure that you've got avenues to be learning constantly and informing your strategy. And that's only going to happen, not necessarily through, through consuming media on it. I mean, I think that plays a role, but it's, it's largely in, in, you know, in having resources in the form of, of frankly, people that are smarter than you. And, and so it's within such a fast moving sector, it's very difficult sometimes to maintain the pace with the rate of both dollars that are moving as well as decisions that are getting made at the, at the global and, and national levels. And so having people that are plugged into these networks and in these conversations understand the science better, you understand the policy better than you, those are amazing resources. And so being able to, to work in, in, alongside them is critical success determinant that you can build and, and you can build that habit of doing so from a very early stage. It's not something that comes when that first check comes in the door. That should be part and parcel of your approach from day one. We will make sure that it is a shout out for the bootcamp and include the link to the bootcamp in the show notes. Jamil, Mia, thank you both so much for this conversation. Really enjoyed it. Best of luck to both of you and all the work that you're doing. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.